Better than never, right? Because we're all human beings. <laughs> and so now, now I feel like oh, I have to say everything I just said into the tape recorder. No, I'm not that, I'm not that uh, attached to my talks. Um, so um, part of practice then is what does it mean to embody the Dharma? What is, what is real action? What is action that's syntonic with what we discover when we pay attention to what's here and the potential of what's here for each of us? And by potential, I mean the, the amazing capacities we have as human beings of body, heart, and mind to create the world and to create a world that often is suffering but, all, but actually to create a world that is beautiful or wondrous or loving or caring or kind. And it's, we live in such an interesting time. And, it, and, and one of the, when I was growing up in the Dharma as a young man, one of the misunderstandings was about being involved in the world because Right, the Dharma is very, has been very um, um, grounded in the monastic tradition and kept alive in the monastic tradition in a very pure and beautiful way for for a few thousand years now. Right, uh, but it's not the only place the Dharma has been kept alive. The Buddha taught what was called the fourfold Sangha the Sangha of, of monks and nuns and of householder men and women. And that was the, the Sangha that the Buddha taught to and that lived and has lived ever since he was here in the world alive as a human being. <clears throat> and a human being who discovered something about reality that not everybody had discovered, but he said it was possible for all of us, for each of us, to wake up, to awaken to what's here, to our potential, to the true maturity of what it is to be a human being. <clears throat> and so part of right action or virtue, I should read you a little about virtue, because I like the word. Let's see if I can find it. Virtue, because what, what I find beautiful about virtue is it's a power. And we don't think of it that way, of virtue as a power. And the word from the Latin means power or force or energy or strength. And it's a certain kind of strength when one is virtuous or has virtue. And it also um, talks about valor or virility, same root in Latin, but also meaning excellence or goodness or moral excellence, which is mostly how we think about virtue or the, the virtue as the Buddha taught it. We think about morality or ethics and those are all part of it. But often we don't see the power of 
morality. We don't see the power of ethics. It's, we associate it with, oh, being a good person in some way. And that's, that's, a, that's a good association. But I think it's very important to see the power that comes with a certain kind of virtue. And you can see it in certain people. I mean, uh, some archetypal images come to mind of Nelson Mandela, that kind of virtue, the power of his virtue of having been put in prison for 28 years and come out a quite a wise and loving human being. And I mean, this is just a little aside, but when I went and visited our friends, uh, Kitty Sarah and Tanisara in South Africa, um, uh, I went to his prison, I visited his prison on Robin Island. Wow, I haven't even thought that name in a long time. And you know, and you see his cell that he lived in, and, and but his virtue, he never lost his virtue. He never lost his power. He never lost his integrity, even though he was horribly imprisoned. <clears throat> so, so I appreciate the power and the potential, and really the beauty of virtue and when I think of the power I want to just I want to say a little more because it's like the power of a flower blooming like where does that come from that delicacy that beauty that magic of flowers and and how they just light up our life sometimes when we see a flower wake up and that we ourselves have the potential for that kind of flowering, of dharmic flowering, and the part of that flowering is not just about our awareness or our awakening, but of our virtue. <clears throat> it's interesting. I'll add a little more about words, partly because I, I like words. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's our good friend and been here, taught here, and who I have a lot of affection for, love for, um, he often uses the word harmony when talking about this domain of human of Buddhist practice, of that we're we're coming into harmony with reality by being uh, by being in uh, 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 by weaving our integrity with reality and with the way things are and with what's helpful and skillful for ourselves and for other people to live life's lives of harmony, of not suffering. And so even though, and he talks about the different levels of harmony one creates or can be part of with our practice he talks about the potential, first of all, for social harmony. And let me just back up and give a little more context, especially for people who are new. One of the key ways that virtue is presented in Buddhism is um, um, the five precepts. And the five precepts are not to kill, not to steal, not to misuse one's sexuality, not to misuse speech, and not to misuse intoxicants, right? Those are the five precepts that one 
takes, one aligns with in order to um, uh, let the power of virtue live right here. And if you've never done, if you've never done that, if you've never really taken the five precepts, it's a, it's a fantastic practice to do and to really do it consciously. Oh yeah, for, for one month I'm going to live and be aware of these five precepts and stay in alignment with them so that I'm not harming anybody or anything by killing anything, right? Or stealing anything or misusing the power and potency of our sexuality or not misusing the power and potency of speech, of language, of words, and not, and not intoxicating ourselves. Even, and this is from Suzuki Roshi, don't intoxicate yourself with the Dharma even, which I love that Suzuki Roshi said that and pointed to that, because we can intoxicate ourselves with spirituality also. <clears throat> so Bhikkhu Bodhi, he talked about the the different levels of um, of reality that we can impact by being in alignment, being in, in integrity with ourselves, right? And so he talks about the precepts and the impact socially that it builds trust among peoples. That is really desperately needed in our world these days so that we can live here together in a way that makes sense for all of us, not just for some small part of us, but for everybody. That, that the precepts build trust, friendship, love, community, connectedness as human beings. And it's something that we all, I, I don't know the right word, want, need, have to have really to survive as human beings on this planet. He also talks about how the precepts build um, uh, and the kind of harmony that comes is both social harmony and is psychological harmony. That there's a kind of integrity we start to have so that we can be with ourselves in a harmonious way that we feel we can appreciate ourself and our self-worth and our dignity and our nobility and the beauty of who and what we are as human beings, that we're here in body, heart, and mind. And we have all this potential to wake up and to, to, do, to do good, actually, to do, to do what we care about or what we love or what's important to us and to create reality in, in some way, shape, or form, which doesn't mean control reality. It's one of the great paradoxes of the Dharma. It's not about controlling reality. It's about participating in reality with our intelligence and our heartfulness and our, he and our presence, our hearness. <clears throat> And then he talks about the harmony that comes socially, psychologically, karmically, that the power of our actions is not just in the moment, but has its movement over time and space. And at least in Buddhism, they talk about it over lives, that it actually has its power. And who knows? 
you know, I can assure you we'll all see soon enough what happens if there's a next life or not, you know. And so if you stay awake, it'll get very interesting when we die, because who knows what happens. At least in Buddhism, they talk about multiple lives. <clears throat> but even karmically here and now, we can all, we can't control karma, but we can have an impact on karma. It's a very important point. Because I've so I often heard the misunderstanding about, oh, that's your karma, it's your fault. And that's a misunderstanding of karma to blame anybody or to aggrandize anybody for what's happening to them. Because karma is way more, way broader than that. And the Buddha said, I can't remember how he said it. What he said was, if you try to understand karma totally, you'll go crazy, basically. Because it's too complex. There are too many forces in play that, part of, that are part of the uh, um, karmic uh, conditions that make anything happen. But we, have, we play some part in those karmic conditions. And so if we play some part, let's have some fun in playing some part. Let's throw the dice. And Eugene, Buddha didn't say that. That's a very Eugene <laughs> way to say it. But really, but what that means is, how might we help impact reality <coughs> karmically also? So that it's not only our own karma, but the karma of everybody that we're part of. <clears throat> And of course, harmony is an important piece of the contemplative basket, which is the third basket, right? So there's the, the wisdom basket and then the, the, the um, ethical basket or the virtue basket, and then there's the contemplative basket. And harmony is important and very beneficial, very skillful in our sitting practice, in paying attention to what is this experience right here? What is this aliveness right here? What is, what, what is thinking? What is feeling? What are sensations? And what's having those thoughts, the, the feelings, the sensations? And what's knowing all of that? And how to bring that into, or allow that harmony to start to develop and flower right here through meditation practice or contemplative practice, reflective, not just meditation, but investigative practice and, and um, all the other possible practices, which really includes um, virtue, the practice of virtue or right action. <coughs> So one of the ways that um, uh, the precepts are talked about um, is, you know, about what you don't do, but also about the positive side of the precept. So not to kill, right, which is the first precept, not to kill living things which is really, I, sometimes I find it so moving that that was the Buddha's first precept. 
And I find it so moving because there's the obvious precept of not to kill other people, right? But it's also not to kill any living being. That's such a radical understanding for human beings who easily kill other things, right? I mean, we all, everybody here not have killed insects and things like that. Like that's just, a, you know, there's a mosquito, you just swat it. And it's so interesting, the kind of reverence the Buddha had for life, that he makes that the first precept, not to kill things. And, and so the positive way to understand it is the respect for life, the respect for aliveness, the respect for the magic or the mystery of life itself, which for all living things, including the Buddha, is totally temporary, right? It's for, and, or for insects or for people who live 110 years, that, that's it. It happens for a while, a moment, an hour, a day, a month, a year, a few years, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years and then it's gone. I mean, just life itself is so magical that we're here and that we're alive and we even pretending we understand each other a little bit. I always find that totally amazing. And we do, we do. I'm not, I don't mean to denigrate it at all, but it's just such a part of the magic of life itself. Because I, I don't know how other animals communicate, but humans, have the language, which is, of course, the fourth precept is about speech, because it's such a powerful thing. What we say impacts reality. And who we say, and when we say something, and how we say something, and the intention that's woven into what we're saying becomes all part of the causes and conditions for what can happen for ourselves or somebody else. <clears throat> and so the first, the first precept about not killing is about respecting life. And the second precept, which is not stealing, you know, we vow not to take what has not been given, is often how it's traditionally said in English at retreat centers that I've practiced that. And, uh, you know, and that's a fine way to say it, but what that's also pointing at is a kind of generosity that we're going to let things be here. We let things live in that way, which is a different way than the not killing, not stealing, not grasping, not holding on to, not hoarding, not having to have everything because we want it, but realizing, oh, everything's here for all of us and we're sharing it even though some of it you know this is definitely my water bottle these days don't don't take it but really some someday i'm going to leave it somewhere somebody else is going to use it they'll take it 
you know, I mean, I might miss it because it's such a, no, it's not even such a cool water bottle. <laughs> Actually, I'm so old-fashioned, of course, I should have a metal water bottle now or a glass, right? People are shaking their heads because there's some way drinking this is bad and I could hurt myself, but I don't believe that at all, so I'm going to live with these old water bottles. <laughs> But, but meaning we just start to see, oh, we're living here together in a way we're often not aware of. And so the not stealing is a kind of generosity of all of us being here together. And, and so it's a social action that we're doing and a social integrity that we're living not to steal or not to take. And in that way we're promoting a certain kind of social positivity or social justice or um, appreciating the well-being of other people as well as our own well-being. <laughs> and um, the third precept is about sexuality and avoiding sexual misconduct. And really, it's again, it's about pain, about not adding to our own pain around sexuality and the power of sexuality, or not adding to somebody else's pain about the power around sexuality. And sexuality is such an amazing thing, totally, every which way, amazing, right? That it's not just, it's, you know, it's technically about procreation, right? Sexuality. And yet, it's not limited to procreation. Like, people often enjoy sexuality. Anybody never noticed that? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, that's a very normal thing. And so, and, and, the, and the concern, the care is, oh, how can we do this in a beautiful way, or a kind way, or a caring way, while we totally enjoy it at the same time? Is that possible? And so appreciating the beauty of sexuality. <clears throat> and same with speech, right? Because speech is so powerful. They're both really interesting powers that I associate the two, both speech and sexuality. Um, speech is so amazing. Have you ever noticed how bad you can feel because somebody says something to you and it's like, it's, it hurts, or it's mean, or it's untrue, or it's attacking? Or you ever notice how we say things to ourselves that are mean, or harsh, or attacking? And so we want to start to be aware of the Dukkha, dukkha for those of you who are new, or it means suffering, the dukkha that can be created by speech. But we also want to be aware of the sukha that can be created by speech. Sukha is the sweetness or goodness that can come, or the blessings that can come. And because sometimes you can say the right thing at the right moment, and it's totally freeing for somebody. And, and even to ourselves, we can, we can be the same kind of languaging to ourselves. We see, oh, just, I mean, one of the nicest, really kindest words that I've heard personally and heard from many people who practice the Dharma is, it's okay. 
Meaning whatever I just did, it's okay. I'm okay. Just that. Just the non-judgmental normalcy of being a human being and the acceptance of that is so kind and so freeing at times when we hear those words, when we really get it. Because sometimes the self-judgment is so quick and so automatic and so unhelpful. <clears throat> and the fifth precept is about um, intoxication or, or what we consume, right? And, you know, and intoxicants have their place sometimes for fun, right? Or, I mean, I, I have to admit, I, I smoked pot once and I inhaled. <laughs> and, uh, or maybe more than once. And, you know... It had its it had its place, but um, but being intoxicated every day or being intoxicated to not be in touch with what's true is not helpful ultimately. And so, and it's the same what I said before about in, there are other kind there's other ways we can intoxicate ourselves that have some some. Uh, positivity to it like it can be fun to have a drink once in a while if you want you know if you're at a party and it, you, it relaxes people and then they have some fun but if you're doing it more than once in a while why are you doing it more than once in a while what's the need what are you having to drink away or cover up or deny or make okay by drugs or alcohol because that's not going to be skillful for yourself or for others. And it's true, the same of the, with the Dharma. Actually, I think it's fine to get intoxicated with the Dharma. It really, it's actually a good thing. And really, it's just not good to do it all the time for intoxication because it'll have the same negative impact at some point. We'll start to see, oh, we're intoxicating with certain states of consciousness that can come with practice and that are fun, that are actually quite blissful. And, and I've done that. I've totally, I know plenty about bliss in, in meditation practice and, and I like it, it's, it's good. But doing practice to go for the bliss ends up being dukkha because it's still having to do something we can't just be. And what's already here is really what we're interested in. The beingness of who and what we are, the aliveness of who and what we are, the, the Buddha nature of who and what we are is what is really interesting here. And that is not based on that kind of intoxication. <clears throat> and so, there's another piece that I'd like to throw in and then I'll be quiet, which is about compassion in Buddhism. Uh, because it's so important, the, the practice of compassion, the reality of compassion, of the compassionate heart and mind, and the compassion rooted in wisdom and the compassion and all of the precepts are really grounded in a compassionate view of what's possible for us individually and together. And so it's not just about 
just me. It's about me and us. And me and even the line between me and us starts to get erased. <clears throat> Here, I'll read from the Dalai Lama, from the, and this is from a book, and I like the title of his book. It's called The Essence of the Heart Sutra. The Essence of the Heart Sutra from the Dalai Lama. He says, according to Buddhism, compassion is an aspiration, a state of heart and mind, wanting others to be free from suffering. It's not passive. It's not passive. It's not empathy alone, but rather an empathic altruism that actively strives to free others from suffering. Genuine compassion must have both wisdom and loving kindness. That is to say, one must understand the nature of suffering from which we, from, from which we wish to free others. This is the wisdom. And one must experience deep intimacy and empathy with other sentient beings. This is the loving kindness or the metta that he's pointing at. <clears throat> And so he's pointing at, it's not just a contemplative practice, compassion. That the precepts are not just a con contemplation of not killing and not stealing and not you know, hurting oneself or others with speech or sexuality or intoxicants. But it's really about how do we live together? What does it mean to live together? And, and how do we use the power and potency of the Dharma of practice in order to create a world that no one believes is possible? Which is, and I say that because that's a very um, key understanding in the Buddha's own awakening. When he was seeking freedom, he went to all the great spiritual teachers of his time and he was quite, he was quite a great adept. He was a really high-level practitioner. And they all said, oh, you, you're get it. you get it, you get it. I want you to teach my way. And, and their ways didn't bring the freedom he, saw, he, he intuitive, intuited was possible. And, and he said, no, I want this freedom. And they said, oh, that's not possible. Nobody has that. Nobody's ever had that. You're not going to have that. And he said, and he trusted himself about something nobody believed was possible, and then he discovered it. <clears throat> and so I'll say one last thing about that action or the living it the, that the Dalai Lama is pointing at. Um, Right. One must understand the nature of suffering from which we from which we wish to free others, and one must experience a deep intimacy and empathy with other sentient beings. And this is from Martin Luther King. He said, "We are visitors on this planet. We are visitors on this planet. We are here ninety, a hundred years at the very most." During that period, we must try and do something good, something useful with our lives, to try and be try and be at peace with yourself and help others share that peace. If you contribute to others' happiness, you will find the true goal, the meaning of life. The nonviolent approach does not immediately change the heart of the oppressor. 
right? Because he was teaching nonviolent resistance to racism. The nonviolent approach does not immediately change the heart of the of the oppressor. It at first it first does something to the hearts and souls of those who are committed to nonviolence. It gives them a new self-respect. It calls up resources of strength and courage that they did not know they had. So I'm going to stop there. And of course, always happy to hear your thoughts or questions or disagreements or reactions. Please, and always I also like to just in general invite people, if you haven't spoken here and it makes you nervous to speak here, do it anyways. Please say your name and go from there. Yeah. Hi, I'm Roberta. Hi, Roberta. Um, I feel there's a lot of virtue in your Dharma, Dharma talks, which is why I keep coming. So I appreciate that, and I enjoyed hearing the explanation this evening. Except one thing I really didn't like. Sure, please say it. Please say it. <laughs> when you said um, that sexuality is technically about appropriation, is about what? Appropriating. Okay. And the. I think that you probably could expound on it more and then I could understand it better. Sure, let, let's talk about it. Here's, here's what I'm meaning when I say that. Technically, meaning physically, sexuality for, I believe, all animals is about procreation. Like that's what it was, that's the design. Now I'm not saying we're limited to that at all or that's the only way it, we should be, but I'm saying, um, uh, animalistically, that's the basic design. I don't mean we're limited to that design. Right. Okay. Is so, that, and please, go ahead. Um, being raised Catholic, uh -huh. I thought homo homosexuality was wrong. Uh -huh. This is a long time ago. And so I did, in high school, I did a research paper, and I found that there was homosexual behavior um, in every single... Uh, mammal, animal, and on the planet, uh -huh, including birds, good. like yeah. you name it. Uh -huh. And I also, there were other things that um, brought brought to my attention through my own research that um, made me come to the conclusion that uh, I was totally wrong and that it's not a choice and um, it's not wrong to be have homosexual behavior. And I also learned in that research that there are other um, beings on this earth that do have sex for pleasure, uh -huh. not just procreation. Right. So the reason why this is so um, uh, heartfelt for me uh -huh. is because one, I've been through that uh -huh. through Catholicism, which I didn't agree with. And I also, <coughs> as a 39-year-old woman, everyone says, well, do you want kids? Do you want kids? And I'm like, you know, I can't control the universe. Why do you think I can't? <laughs> um, yeah, sure, so, sure. I don't think that it's about, I don't think that sexuality is about appropriation, personally. Okay, great. No, that's very helpful what you're saying. 
And I'll definitely take that into consideration if I ever was to say that again. Because I never heard that about all animals are homosexual also. And, um, and it was just my understanding that there's a very basic part of animal nature is about creating more animals. That's what animals do. Okay, okay. So I'll get my statement a little better, really. And and of course, I I don't at all mean to limit anything about sexuality to that idea that I have about the procreation, the procreative part of sexuality. And uh, yeah, so I appreciate you saying that, and very helpful for me. What is the Buddhist? Oh yeah, good. Interpretation is because I, I, I really look to you. I, you teach me so much, and um, that's really my question sure. too. So um, the simple, the simple part in Buddhism is, if you're a householder, you're free to use your sexuality without harming people. That's all. It's just it's all about harm, or what creates suffering. And if it's not creating suffering, it's, it's no big deal. And Buddhism is a religion that has come through many different peoples, not all of who were as enlightened as the Buddha. And so even the Dalai Lama used to say negative things about homosexuality. And he got responses, especially from Westerners, and it changed what he said. But he gets a lot of, this is my interpretation now, but he also gets some reaction inside of his, the traditional Tibetan Buddhist community if he doesn't say something, right? So he's, he's on the hot seat a little bit that way. But he's definitely hears and he know and he says, oh, there's actually nothing against homosexuality in Buddhism. But he was taught that yeah, you say these things, right? Meaning it's not right, because it that's how it used to be taught in Buddhism. Right? Okay, thank you. Yeah, sure. Thank you. I appreciate that. My name is Robert. Um, since the topic today is about right action, uh, one of my best friends is literally destroying his life right now uh, through drugs and lying and cheating. Right. I'm trying to help him through that uh, suffering. What are some actions that you would recommend? I have no idea, so I'll start there. but. First of all, recognizing the suffering that he's experiencing is one of the key things. And then how to work skillfully with the suffering is uh, part of what you're going to need to discern. And you want to be aware of, does he, is he open to being helped? And is he being real? And what kind of help is needed? Because you can have, you can be compassionate in different ways. One can be very kind, or very sweet, and very caring, and one can be very fierce and very tough and very ruthless kind of compassion. Because different kinds are needed at different times and different places with different people, and especially when somebody's dealing with addiction, 
and then the kind of dukkha that comes with addiction, lying, cheating, stealing, etc. Um, all kinds of different skillful means might be needed, including more organized skillful means than just friendship, right? So 12-step therapy, I, I don't know, you know what he's tried or done or, or where he can go, but I would really uh, be open to the variety of skillful means that's available. Um, even Noah, do you know Noah Levine? You know who he is? Uh, Dharma punks against the stream, uh, yeah. right? So no, Noah now has some kind of dharmic uh, recovery uh, places. So there are different ways to offer skillful means, but he, the person has to really be open to the skillful means. And often it, it takes a lot of dukkha before one is open to the skillful means, meaning the person who's, who's addicted or um, they go through a lot of dukkha. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, I think you're just suggesting just keep compassion and awareness of his pain and try to get him to be aware of that. Compassion, awareness, and discernment about what's needed, what might be helpful, and it, might, and it can be paradoxical at times, what's needed. Yeah, it's just very hard to get other people sometimes to realize right. their own actions that are yeah, no, it's hard because the suffering impacts a lot of people, and people don't be like that impact. So they don't see that the person is suffering. And of course, this happens for all of us, right? You know, anytime somebody's really acting badly, they're suffering on whatever level of badly. And that's some, something that's hard for us to see. It doesn't mean we have to like what they're doing. It means we're willing to see the causes and conditions that are stimulating what's happening, whether it's personally or culturally or class-wise or racially or nationally or politically, right? And then we can respond with our intelligence and our heartfulness and our skillfulness. Thank you. Sure. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Hi, my name is Apleko. Um, so when someone causes you suffering and they hurt your feelings, mm -hmm. how do you move on from that so you can still feel compassion for them? Um, that's a good question. How do you do it? <coughs> what have you done so far? So you're having a reaction to them, right? You're hurt or you're angry. So the first thing is to be aware of your hurt and anger. And you don't have to get past your hurt and anger. You want to actually be aware of it first. Because, <coughs> excuse me, I've been teaching all weekend. Water, I'm drinking water, come on. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate your help. <laughs> Um, I've just I've been teaching all weekend. I'm, I'm tired. Um, um, the reaction is really important to start to pay attention to, 
because if you can metabolize your reaction, you can take that energy forward in how you might respond skillfully to the person. And responding skillfully might be not to relate to them. That might be the most skillful thing. Or it might be you're going to relate more clearly or directly to them or more honestly with them. Or you're going to tell them how hurt you are, you know, which we don't like to tell people because then they'll think they won or something. But in fact, that might be the truth. I'm just hurt and so it's hard for me to relate to you. And so being the, the metabolization of your experience, uh, instead of just believing the reaction, right, will help you then respond with your intelligence and your creativity and your kindness, both to yourself and to the other person. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> So you're describing using dharmic uh, yeah. principles in your relationship with them, of being aware of them, being open to them, being discerning clearly the dukkha that's there, and then also watching one's own intention, motivation yeah. in response to them, and, and letting go in some way. And, and then seeing what happens when, as you let the dharma live through you in that relational way. It's not just letting go in some way. It's a really specific way. It's really easy for us to get enmeshed with somebody else that's going through stuff like that and take things personally. Well, that's what I mean by letting go. Okay, yeah, and, sure. And it's really their dukkha. It's not yours. And if you can realize that it has nothing to do with you, and it makes it a lot easier to reach out to them with a helpful compassion. That's all I want to yeah, say. Yeah, great. No, it's great, because the letting go is helpful for everybody. 
right? Helpful for us, helpful for them. Meaning it's helpful (laughs) in almost any relationship, good or bad, really. Anyhow, I think we're going to stop here. Uh, Let's sit for a minute before we end. Yeah, I've got it. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. Taking a moment to breathe in and out from the heart center. Appreciating the time and place we have here to investigate the Dharma, investigate what it is to be a human being and the goodness of having that time and space, place, teachings. And as part of our Sangha practice, our communal practice, we want to offer our good wishes to Bob Dunjakor. Bob and his wife Anne have been part of the Sangha for quite a long time. And Bob just had a very bad bike accident and is in the hospital. Um, So we want to offer them our good wishes and our loving kindness, our metta. And as we feel, sense, let the heartfulness radiate for Anne and Bob and for their family. May it spread in every direction for the suffering beings in every community, every place, every city, every state, every country, for all the suffering beings in this magical world, wishing well, wishing all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, free from dukkha. May all beings begin to wake up and live with integrity, with harmony, with the power of virtue to create a world that we can't even imagine that it could be so good. May all beings be free May all beings realize their true nature, their Buddha nature, nature of wisdom and compassion. May all beings in this world and every world be free.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.